Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final episode uh, for this year of the Oscars series here. This is a series we started a few days ago with uh, me and my co-host from the Cinephiles. That's the gentleman you see on the screen there, Steve Morris. We have uh, talked about one film uh, almost every day uh, that is nominated <laughs> for Best Picture, and we've gotten to our 10th film here after dropping two yesterday to catch up for missing one a couple of days ago. Uh, we dropped our uh, Nightmare Alley and West Side Story yesterday, and today... It is Licorice Pizza. I am one of your hosts here for this series on the Outlaw Nation. My name is the Outlaw John Roca, and that is, as I said, Steve Morris, uh, my brother in life and in the cinephile. Steve, how are you? How are you feeling on this Sunday as we're on the precipice of the Oscars happening just a few hours away? I'm good, and I'm really happy we were going to record this earlier. And if yes. you had asked me that question a few hours ago, I would have said, I'm a little tired. I'm a little, <laughs> and now I, you know, gone out. Uh, did some errands, took some Steve yeah. time. I'm doing really well. Steve time is necessary. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> well, as I said, we're talking about licorice pizza. Those of you who follow me on social media or follow my reviews, I think you have a good idea of how I feel about this movie. Even retweeted some or tweeted something today because um, uh, an Asian American activist uh, group came out today and uh, launched a protest 
against this film because of some of the portrayals uh, here by Asians in the film and a, a white character doing an Asian accent uh, for some unknown insane reason. Um, and uh, this, and I echoed that protest and retweeted that protest as well. So I think people know my feelings on this movie. This is from writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson. It stars uh, the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman here in Cooper Hoffman and one-third of the group of Haim, Alana Haim, uh, making her uh, debut, feature film debut, I believe, as a lead here in this film. So um, it basically focuses on uh, these two characters here, Alana Kane and Gary Valentine, who grew up in and around and run around and fall in love in California, San Fernando Valley in the 1970s. She is 25 years old when they meet. He is 15. And when this when this romance kind of begins and then when it settles in by the end of the movie, they're still 10 years apart and they've only aged one extra year or she's possibly older. So we're going to get to that and talk about it. But overall, you, you know how I feel about it. I want to hear what Steve Morris has to say. Steve, what are your thoughts on Licorice Pizza? May, may, may I answer this question by answering a question that we always ask in an episode of The Cinephiles, which yeah, is how I came to this film? Sorry, how did you come to this film, Steve Moore? So Let me tell you how I came to this film. So <laughs> months and months ago, I think you went to a screening, mm -hmm. and, it, and it, after the screening, you said, I just saw this movie, and you just... I would say ranted about how little you liked it. And yeah. then you said, and then you said to me, I can't wait till you see this movie so we could talk about it. And I said, after that review, this is at the bottom of my list. I'm not <laughs> going to go see this movie. And so I didn't see the movie until the last two days where I watched it over two days. And, you know, I was very curious. Am I going to be team Roca or am I going to be team Oscars? Yeah. I'm a hundred percent team Roca. Wow. I totally agree with you. I don't like this movie. Yeah. I do not understand. I mean, it's like, and you and I both love Paul Thomas Anderson. We've yes. talked about him. Two, three pieces. films. Yeah. Three films on the cinephiles. He's an absolute genius. Yes. And I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, are there things in the movie that I thought, oh, wow, this is, there was, there's certainly a sequence where the movie was totally working and that's yeah. the Bradley Cooper sequence. Yes. For me. But like, I, I mean, basically it seems like he was trying to make a Paul Thomas Anderson when Harry met Sally. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Like it's his romantic comedy. The difference is I did not care about these two people. I think I just, that's, yeah. yeah. Steve, I think that's where you have to start at, right? Both of these people are kind of toxic, messed up people. Now I get it. You're like, who's perfect? Of course. Who's normal? Of course. But if I'm supposed to champion these people, I can't champion these people because of some of the behavior that they carry out in the movie. I mean, they initially meet um, because, you know, she's clearly upset or not happy with her life. He is, a, you know, 15-year-old kid. She's running the yearbook photography sessions as an employee of the company that's doing that. So she knows that a high school kid is hitting on her and she's 25 years old. She agrees to go out with him and see him. And they have these adventures and have these conversations and what have you. And she initially makes it clear that they're not going to do anything, but they spend the entire movie absolutely emotionally messing with each other and mentally messing with each other the whole movie. These two people aren't capable of understanding what the word love actually is because they're so absolutely fucked up and seeing critics and pundits fall all over themselves, some of them, not all, obviously, to say that this is a love story makes no sense to me at all. This is a kid that has no discipline, no supervision. His mom works for him at a young age. He's jealous. He's angry. He uses her 
puts her in a bikini to take advantage of of whatever he thinks her sexual attraction may be for his customers. She peers in and watches him making out with a girl his own age and gets jealous about it, makes out with some random dude on the street who had been hitting on her, and then runs home in her bikini. Then later, um, they have a battle about the situation. She uses Sean Penn, who's in the movie here, as something to make him jealous, to make a teenager jealous of her. You're in your mid-20s, maybe older, because she lets it slip in the truck when they're driving the truck there later on in the moving truck, Steve, that she might be 28 years old, which makes this even more insane. And this isn't a Harold and Maude situation. This is a teenager. And to me, I can't get past that. And it seems like a statutory romance. Why should I cheer for this? And if this was a 15-year-old girl with a 25, 28-year-old man, how many women's groups would be going insane right now? And how many men who are a little right in their heads would be going insane about making this seem like a cool relationship to champion and cheer for um, in this movie? So there's a lot there, but I do want to push back on one thing you said, sure, sure. which is that you can't, is that you kind of said, I can't get behind these these messed up toxic people. They don't understand what love is. How can I, what is one of the other PTA movies we did is Punch Drunk Love. Right. And that is a love story that I know you love. I do. I love and it. And Adam Sandler's character is yeah. way fucked up. That's More true. Fucked, yeah. I mean, and so like, I think. But well, they're adults. And I think that's where my sure. stopping point is. So sure. I hear what you're saying. That's a fair pushback. Yeah. But, but I, I, I mean, to me, it's just, I didn't find them that interesting and yeah. I should have, like they were doing interesting things. Yes. I mean, and, and we do have to say that the, you know, the guy, he is a 15 year old, but he is an unbelievably precocious 15 year old. Right. And, and the thing is, is he, his behavior is as an adult. He behave. I mean, I don't mean that he's mature. I mean that ah. the things that he's doing yes. in terms of I am running these businesses, he does he doesn't think of himself as a kid in any way. Yeah. And I do think about, I mean, how precocious was Paul Thomas Anderson? You know, right. how young was right. he when he was directing adults and telling them what to do? Yeah. You know, and so I am it's funny. I am so for that reason, I was less bothered by what you're bothered by, mm. although I completely understand. Your objection. I mean, this is, you know, and I, and I go to, it, it's interesting you brought up Harold and Maude because I think, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson is very much in a lot of ways a filmmaker of the 70s. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of, hey, we're going to push all our boundaries in the 70s. And I think yeah. that's what he's trying to do. The problem is, again, I don't care. Like I literally, I'm writing notes and, and I wrote, uh, I, I wrote down this note that said, I don't care about their relationship. And then yeah. I stopped the thing to look at the time and I was 59 minutes into the movie <laughs> and to be 59 minutes into the movie wow. and go, I don't care about this relationship. And the whole movie is about this relationship. It's a real problem. You know, I agree with you, brother. It, it felt interminable in the screening. Once you turn on a film, a screening can become interminable. And that's what it felt like to me watching this relationship. Cause I get what Paul was trying to do or PTA was trying to do with this film. I get that I was supposed to connect. And by the way, I know we should kind of veer into the acting as well. I believed both of these people in what totally. they were doing. I believed in their, in their performances, in their characters, and what they were creating. Let's make this clear. This is a well-directed movie, I would argue. Um, it's just that the central premise of the film and watching their behavior, because yes, what you say is correct. The kid is, uh, he runs these businesses, but he's so jealous and envious and he uses people. So yeah, you might argue, well, so do adults. That's fair. But his his emotional maturity is clearly not there. And she toys with him and she should know better. 
any adult, doesn't matter her gender, okay, should know better. Her putting her feet on the desk and seductively talking to the person on the phone to mess with a kid's hormones, it's just like, to me, this is all they did. There was no real genuine moment of love. And even when she's passed out, he actually considers sexually assaulting her while uh, on that waterbed and thinks better of it. And the, to me, that's how is that supposed to be an endearing thing? I just, to me, over and over again, it showed me that these people have a lot of work to do outside. And normally I'd be okay if I could find some semblance of understanding with either of these two characters, as you mentioned, and I can't, therefore I can't connect to this relationship. I can't connect to what they're doing in the film. So I absolutely agree with you. Let's move to the acting here. As I mentioned here with, uh, with Cooper Hoffman, Alana Haim, we Sean Penn's in this. Tom Waits has a funny little cameo, Bradley Cooper. A lot of people wanted Bradley Cooper to be nominated for the, what, seven minutes that he's on screen in this film. Benny Safdie, one half of the directing duo, the Safdie brothers who do uh, Uncut Gems, is in this. Uh, John Michael Higgins is in this as, in, as a very troublesome character. Christine Ebersole uh, doing her thing in here as well as his agent. Um, and I think those are the, the oh, my Rudolph also, of course, who is yep. Miss Paul Thomas Anderson is in this as well. Um, thoughts, Steve, on the acting here from everybody involved overall, did anybody not, um, kind of impress you or did you have any issues? I, I mean, that? in, in general, this is a really good cast. Yeah. I think Sean Penn's version of William Holden, and it's so like William Holden's Circa yes. Network, yes. was amazing. Yeah, I don't understand why it's in the movie. I think the, uh, I think, I think the whole Bradley Cooper John Peter sequence is incredible, um, and that's where because the thing that Paul Thomas Anderson is among that might be the greatest of all time yeah. is just creating underlying tension. Like he's able oh, yeah. to just where he puts the camera and how the music sounds and what the situation is, make you just feel really stressed out. But the only time that was happening was in the John Peter sequence. Yeah. There I was a hundred percent involved yeah. in what was going on. I also, by the way, had to re-listen to the uh, Kevin Smith, John Peter story about <laughs> Superman because, <laughs> and what's funny is, yeah, um, is that he, the Bradley Cooper character says to Gary about being from the streets, yeah, which is yeah. what Kevin Smith said that the real John Peters said to him repeatedly. Oh, we I'm understand sure. each other because we're both from the streets. And by the way, I enjoy the Kevin Smith Superman story more than I enjoyed Licorice Pizza. So, <laughs> like the other thing, and the what is it, uh, John Michael Higgins? Yes, I don't. Uh, in addition, like put let's put aside for the moment that it's offensive. Yeah, I don't understand it. I don't literally have no idea. I think it's like the look at the weird characters that populate the valley. But I was just like, what is this? It's but there's so yeah. I mean, I'm okay with you putting this because certainly Paul Thomas Anderson puts weird characters in his movie because yeah. as fucked up as Adam Sandler is to reference the punch like love, his sisters are just as fucked up in different ways, totally. which is why he's fucked up the way he is to a degree. You know, it is, you know, he takes responsibility, but also the family influences push him in certain directions as well. Yeah, a character like this, the John Michael Higgins character. He speaks in an Asian accent, and these two Asian, he does it twice with two different Asian women, literally exchanges one for the other as the film goes on, and there's no conversation about it. There's no touching base about it, and, and, and he's a business partner to this kid, so 
he isn't like just some random character. He's actually a kid, a business partner of this kid who is helping this kid. So it's an important character in the movie and there's no comeuppance. And I've seen some people push back on, well, if you have a character like that, it doesn't necessarily mean you approve of that person's point of view. That's fine. But you have to give the person a comeuppance if he's a central part of your movie. If you don't, you're essentially condoning it. That's what you're doing. When it's a, when it's a random character who shows up or whatever, it can be he can he or she can be racist and move on. That's fine. But if you attach him to the main character, then that person has to have some sort of comeuppance if they're doing Asian, I mean, offensively racist Asian uh, um, things in the or to, towards Asians in the film. And I, there is no reason for that character to do any of that in the movie. Could have been just a businessman who works with him. There's just no reason for it to be in the fucking film. So I don't think at all bad characters have to have a comeuppance. I think there's plenty of times that people could be a racist or an asshole or a serial killer and have zero comeuppance in the film. Okay. I don't have a problem with that. But I think the film needs to have a stance in terms of how we are supposed to feel Fair. about this person. That's, Is that Maybe that's more clear. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, okay. And because in this, it's like, well, or do you think, I should be laughing because you think this is funny or do you, because if that's the case, then the film is condoning on some level. It's saying, yeah, you know, doing accents like this is funny, which is something we've kind of left behind. You know yes. what I mean? Yeah. Like in the post Apu world, let's say is, yeah. you know, the comedy of a, of a, of a white person making fun of a foreign accent. It's not yeah. really plain. Are we supposed to think that that person is ridiculous and a fool you know, in which case I would say then you're not condoning it. But I didn't feel that the film was saying that. I yeah. felt the film was somewhat neutral about it. And it was just, you know, it, to me, it just felt like it was weird to be weird. Yeah. You know, and, um, I'll, yeah. I'll go ahead. And it's because Gary never takes a position. Like if Gary made a comment right after dealing with him twice going, that dude is a fucking insane racist. Then you've made a position from your main character and he works with them because he has to in the situation is young doesn't have a lot of business contacts so the ones he does have that help him he wants to keep fostering but he's got but he's got a personal judgment on the guy then the film has made a stance so yeah i i hear what you're saying sorry to cut you off go ahead sorry well, 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 what i would say actually here here would be my solution because the, mm. the the japanese woman that he's with is only speaking in japanese yes and what if we had alana you know she's in the bathroom with the person and talks has that conversation yeah with someone who works there what if the japanese woman who we've only see speak japanese speaks english perfectly right. well in a new york accent yeah. and and they go why do you put up with this guy and she's like i need the work you know he's he's funding my restaurant what do you want yeah. me to do yeah you know and, and then the movie has taken a stance they've said this yeah. is a fool uh, another thing by the way that's a weird choice and basically there's no makeup in this film yeah people are sweaty they're there you know all the things that movies normally hide mm -hmm. are not being hidden and i would love to hear what paul thomas anderson's reasoning for this is you know i would imagine it was to make it feel like what people Real? think about the 70s that yeah. it was a sweaty dirty for lack of a better term grungy time uh and this is how people saw things outside in the world in in, in san fernando valley which is known for being a very hot place, Steve. You, you both sure. of have ex experienced hot days in the San Fernando Valley. And so I imagine that this is what he was trying to convey. Kind of like when you shoot The Godfather in the 1940s and you make sure you concentrate on the wood and the color of the wood and the color of the rooms and the paneling uh, and the look and the shirts and the you know design, the suits. That's how people were going out in the 40s uh, and a little bit in the 50s. So I think with here, this is such a counterculture rebellious time in the 1970s. Maybe he felt... 
you know, not having too much makeup on there is showing a more authentic approach to how people look. And look, I've seen pictures from the 70s. I've seen uh, some documentaries from the 70s. People were not in their best condition, in their best shape uh, with makeup and what have you back then. So uh, at least from what I've seen. So uh, maybe that's the reason, but I don't know. You know, I think I think you probably put your finger on exactly the reason. And to me, it's like, I, un- I understand that choice. I don't think that choice works. I think w- that, you know, for better or for worse, film is an aesthetic medium yeah. and having people look less attractive. I mean, that's, that's what it is. I know it sounds like I'm being really, really shallow, yeah. but it's like when you set up a shot in the cinematography, you want the lighting to be perfect. When you make yeah. production design, you want to make, even if you're showing a really poor environment, you want to film it in a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's, I mean, most of filmmaking is aesthetic. Yeah, you know, and so to me, it just continually threw me out of the film, frankly. Yeah, another part of this, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, Steve. I mean, I think is her father Eastern European or Jewish? What's what's the is he Eastern European, European Jewish? I don't, I couldn't tell. But they present her father as this angry guy who is messing up her life, and this is what caused her sisters. Uh, are having issues with how she's doing stuff as well. There's, it's so funny you bring this up with Punch Dunk Love. I didn't even think about it until you mentioned it in this review. Like, there are shades of this in the interactions yeah. with her and her sisters, who are her actual sisters, the Haim sisters there in the film. So that's an interesting thing that I hadn't put together. But I found Adam Sandler um, redeemable, uh, connectable. Uh, you know, I could I could see why he's doing I I can't with a lot of there's such a... Uh, I don't know. There's no position that the film takes on the situation other than a, an, a superficial look at her father. There's no coming to Jesus moment. There's no real conversation beyond her being persecuted by her dad. Um, and it's so weird. And, and then whenever she runs off with the, when she runs to be part of the campaign here with Benny Safty, you know, kind of run, she is used by him, but like she shows up and immediately she's the bell of the ball. And this to me is where I find the unbelievability of the film. Every situation she walks into, she's the queen. And it's like, well, then why are you working as, you know, like the second assistant of a photographer doing yearbook photos if you're this amazing? You know, this to me, it's incongruent to me. It's incongruent that every situation she walks in, all of a sudden she's a shooting star. Uh, But each one falls apart. Each one doesn't work out. And she runs back to him every time. She rejects him, tries to do something else, to go with someone else, dismisses him. As she's doing that, kind of sends him, and as soon as it falls apart, she comes running back to him. And to me, that doesn't feel like love in any way, shape, or form. That feels like I got nowhere else to go, so I'm just going to use you until I can find something better. And that's not something you do to someone who you actually really care about. It's weird. Am I am I off base on this? Uh, I don't think you're. So, so I'm going to try to address your points in reverse order. Sure, sure. So starting with where you left off, I under- totally understand structurally, I think, what he's trying to do, which is that she is resisting dating him because he's too young. Right. That, and therefore, all of the separation and push, but she continually finds herself drawn to him, and finally, she gives up resisting. I think structurally, that's it doesn't work for me, but I think that's what it is. Yes. I think the difference with Punch Drunk Love is that you go to the scene where you meet all the sisters and you hear them oh, say yeah. horrible yeah. things about him. Yeah. And then he breaks the, the window. Right. And it's like, and what that means is, is that even though his behavior is outlandish and yeah. even dangerous, we understand his feelings and therefore why he does it. And right. that was what was missing to me, the connection yeah. between, and particularly, and now to, to go back to your first point, 
I don't know where he's from in terms of, I mean, he seems like he's from Europe somewhere, yeah, yeah. the the dad in the family, but I don't understand that those relationships in the family. I don't understand what the family's expectations for her are. Yeah. And I don't understand how she feels within those expectations. Like, cause you have the scene where she has the guy she's dating over who says, you know, I can't say that cause I'm an atheist. Then she goes outside and says, you know, what does your penis look like? Which is a, a weird scene. Yeah. She explodes um, at him and and explodes like, at him. You knew this about why is this? Well, why are but you I so don't angry at me. Yeah. Well, I don't understand if she was angry because he didn't pretend that he was religious. Yeah. Or if she was angry because he wasn't religious, right. or because I I didn't I literally was like, well, I don't understand. Yeah. Like that's why I, go, I think the punch drunk love you know comparison is really valid because I understood right. why Adam Sandler was the way he was. Right. Not that I thought that he was a healthy you know person. I think he's a really messed up person. Well, and in because that again is a good example of that. He becomes stable in his love yes. for, and I understood the progression of his character. I didn't think these characters changed that much. Neither you know? one of them changes in any way, any con concrete shape or form. Because right after the politician thing is where she runs towards him, runs yeah. after him. And we get that scene where she's standing there with the lights and the supposedly the music comes up. So, well, the, the music comes up and supposedly they're now in love or whatever. And it, it didn't work because once again, she's running from a situation that didn't work out for her where she really wanted to get away from the situation with these kids, these teenagers, which she comments on all the time, but she doesn't have the inner strength or resolve to break that thing or to drag him out of being a childish. I mean, they're literally using the gasoline pump as their dicks 10 minutes before the movie right. ends or 15 yeah. minutes before the movie ends. So he hasn't grown in any way, shape or form. And I, I don't know. I, you know, I could be way off base, but this feels almost like an, I don't know. I don't want to say it because I, I could be off base and I don't want to get in trouble for it, but it just feels it's not believable in any way, shape or form. And if they get together, I feel bad for their kids. I feel bad for their gen future generations because this feels like it's going to be a loveless marriage within five to ten years. And he is going to cheat on her multiple times. And she is not settled in anything that she's doing, which could cause problems. So to me, it just it, at the end, I'm not cheering for it. I don't want them to be together. It's like the reverse of Romeo and Juliet. That's tragic for a different reason. This is tragic because they do get together and that and will possibly have a life together. And that I, I, I just worry. I weep for what's coming for their futures you know, by I, the end of the movie. I think it all boils down. And, I, and it'd be, it would, you know, it's too, it's, it would be yeah. interesting if we had the person who loved the movie to ask this question, because yeah. my guess is that the people who love the movie were invested in this relationship mm. from the first five or 10 minutes. And because if I was invested in the relationship, I so. then I would care a lot about, yeah. oh, she's flirting with him and then she's rejecting him. And then this thing, you know, and then she's a hero and driving the truck. And I would be involved in those things yeah. but because I wasn't invested in the relationship. I wasn't invested in the film, you know? Yeah. And once again, this is not a fault of the actors. The actors are incredible. Uh, yeah, one's great. So uh, it's some of the writing that, in, in my opinion, lets them down. And uh, Steve, I think, makes an excellent point. If I had connected to these characters and cared about these characters, then I'd be crowing about the writing. I'd be crowing about the construction of the film. I'd be all about it, but it just didn't work, you know? So, and if it worked for you, more power to you because I'm, Steve and I are never in the, in the uh, business of telling you not to like a movie. Yeah, we may not like it, but it's your decision to like a movie or not like a movie. I think we 
made that clear on numerous uh, episodes of the cinephiles and and here on the channel um well, and, yeah, and i'd say and i'd say one other thing which mm -hmm. is that i think paul thomas anderson is a genius and i want geniuses to follow what they want to do right so I, I wouldn't even say that i wish he hadn't made this film i would never this say. is the film he wanted to make mm -hmm. i want and i want him to go make the next film that he wants to make it's exactly. just this one didn't connect with me uh any thoughts on the uh the the music by uh johnny greenwood here or greenwood here and uh any thoughts on the uh, costume design overall did it really capture the 70s for you in terms of the design the look of the production design and also the costume design and did you like the music the score here uh did that stand it, out to you at all costumes were great i think it definitely did capture it's funny i saw one comparison that people said it's kind of like once upon a time in hollywood in the sense that it's oh, just sort of yeah. we're in this world yeah you know and i think that is it definitely captured a certain moment of time yeah. um for the score for Johnny Greenwood, I, it's it's much less interesting than other scores of his. I agree. Yeah. yeah, I think he did Nightmare Alley. Am I right on that, or is that no, no? I think, I think, I think yeah, I think it was something. Sorry, sorry about that. I think it was Desplat. Desplat was Nightmare Alley. Sorry about that. But he did another. He did. Score, he did do another one, yeah. which I really, really enjoyed. Johnny Greenwood. All right, let's move to the Oscars here, as we try to do on these uh, on these uh, episodes here. Um, three things that's nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay: Steve Morris. Where? No. Does it have no and no and no no it's not how i there's no i i mean i don't like the movie you yeah, know and we already talked about the you know the screenplays for of belfast we talked about yeah uh you know that that i think you know knowing this now i think belfast is a shoo-in to win for mm. screenplay um and you know we we literally gushed we yeah. were as effusive as we can be about steven spielberg's direction of west side story yeah. While also we loved Guillermo del Toro's direction, we loved Jane Campion's direction. So it's right. like, how could I, you know, how could this person get an Oscar for this? It's just, yeah. you know, and it's also, there's also the thing of competing against your own work in that I think there are six, seven PTA movies that are better than this one. Oh, yeah. This you one's know? at the bottom of the list for me of all yeah. PTA movies. Yeah. By a mile, too. Um, all right. Any final words, Steve, as we wrap up here, uh, our last episode of the Oscar series for these Best Picture nominees? I'll tell you something that you have given, a gift you have given your friend Steve Morris. Okay. I'm way more interested in the Oscars this year because <laughs> I actually spent a lot of time thinking about it. I've seen all the films. This is the first time I actually saw the films wow. in a while. Okay. Um, and so and so now I'm like looking forward to watching the show. So thank you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for being a part of this journey. And I'm glad that that was an indirect result of, of what we did. So uh, very uh, appreciative of that as well. And very appreciative of you, brother, to uh, have this these fun half-hour discussions with you and the people who've been listening and watching us. And we've averaged about anywhere from 500 to about 1,100 views on these. The people, the comments down below, though, have been really great to hear people how much how, to hear how much people have enjoyed our conversations and our breakdowns of these films and the tangents we go on and the things they lead to. So I hope uh, you all have enjoyed this series. And I hope you all, if some of you who've never maybe been Cinephiles fans, now maybe you're turned on to kind of try out our show, our podcast, if you haven't tried it out, uh, because we break a, a film down very, very uh, deeply in those <laughs> podcasts for a much, much longer time um, and uh, enjoy doing that. We've been doing it for six years. So please come aboard. Yep the cinephiles uh, 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 train here and I'll put the description uh, or the link rather in the description of this video as well. All right, Steve, thanks again. Here we go. This is the end. Please uh, tell people where they can find you and everything I going on. Well, you already talked about the cinephiles and we just dropped our slightly overdue third part of do the right thing. I think we talked, I think it's three, five, 
five and a half hours on Do the Right Thing. Wow. Uh, and I was really, really pleased with how that all came out. And I think our guest, Andre Gordon, was fantastic. So so definitely check that out. SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. Not my favorite Star Trek episode just came out on Enterprise <laughs> Incident, which is the immuni- immunity syndrome. But definitely check that out for all your Star Trek needs. I think that's uh, all I got. There you go. Uh, as for me, you can follow me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram uh, and TikTok. Uh, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, all one word. Please subscribe to this Outlaw Nation channel down below. You know, trying to get to that twenty five thousand subscribers mark. Please subscribe and hit that bell button so you see when we're dropping everything we do here or series like we do here on the channel uh, all the time. So would appreciate your support for that as well. If you want to be part of the Patreon, patreon.com slash John Roca. And I will be doing a live watch along on Twitch of the Oscars. So if you want to come hang out with me on Twitch as I watch the Oscars, please do so. Go to the Outlaw Nation uh, Twitch channel there, twitch.tv, and just type in the Outlaw Nation. You'll see my logo there and come aboard. and We'll hang out starting at about 4.45 uh, p.m. PT, uh, 7.45 p.m. ET. Uh, so I, we can talk a little bit as we lead into the Oscars there. Uh, so come and join me for a few hours there. Uh, all right, you guys are awesome. Thanks so much for watching every one of these episodes. And they will be up on the Outlaw Nation Podcast Network next week. I'm going to drop one or two every day so that people can re-listen to our conversations and enjoy them that way as well as they're working out or drive a car or whatever. All right, take care of yourselves. Be well. And I'll talk to you next time with another brand new episode here on the Outlaw Nation channel uh, review-wise. Bye. Peace. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109.